There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Today's guest is Michael Coslow. Mike joined the U.S. Air Force at the age of 17, rising to the ranks and working in counterintelligence to safeguard our national security. He retired from military service after 33 years, and his path led him to the Department of Defense Inspector General's office. He broadened his perspective as a special investigations regional manager for a leading healthcare industry organization. He holds a BA in criminal justice, a master's degree in public policy and administration, and is currently working on a doctorate in organizational change and leadership with your host here at the University of Southern California. Got to get a little fight on for that. And he's also running for Congress in his native state of California. Michael Coslow, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Chris, thank you for having me and good to be here. No, thanks for your time, sir. So, Mike, we don't do many episodes focused on politics, but with your background, I know we're in for a lively hour about leadership, values, common sense, and communications. So with that, give us the elevator pitch version of why you're running for Congress. The reason I'm running for Congress, Chris, is because of the fact that my leadership skills and the information that I've acquired over time and working with people on a day-to-day basis through all walks of life to include as far as individuals that are working as plumbers, I was an avionics instruments technician when I first went in the Air Force, and I can remember the days sitting underneath a B-52 bomber, an F-4 fighter jet, and sitting there and working diligently for 12 to 16 hours a day, all the way to the point to where I can relate now to the executive leadership and management styles and the different issues that affect people at, a, at an enterprise level. So all that information and all that talent and all of that capability and the mentorship I received from the multiple individuals over years, because you, you don't accomplish anything on your own. We know that. And it does take a lot of people. So I have a lot of people to thank over the years that took me under their proverbial wing and enabled me to be successful. And I want to be able to give that back and take that knowledge and be able to make the lives of the people in California and for the United States as a whole a lot better than it is right now. Before we get into other issues, let's talk about your unique experience and expertise in intelligence and counterintelligence, because I'm sure many people think that's all cloak and dagger, you know, spies and trench coats business and has nothing to do with me. So why would that attitude be wrong? And especially today? Good question, Chris. It's interesting because we used to say for every hour of investigative time, there were two to three hours of writing that we had to do to follow that. So it was very, very true. And a lot of planning went into that. It really came down to uh, the training was incredibly invaluable. It was uh, diversified, uh, gave us the degree of versatility to work in that hostile environment. When I was working in that environment, I was in Europe working on a program uh, under the Reagan administration uh, behind the Berlin Wall in many cases called Operation Able Archer, which was an effort by the Reagan administration to be able to thwart the incredible size and overwhelming capabilities of the Russian tank force and the divisions that they had established and sitting on the satellite, uh, so former Soviet satellite border. In doing so, what I used to have to do, and I really came down to, is establishing establishing long-term relationships with people and getting them to trust you. And that's somewhat similar to what we have to deal with, being able to go ahead and work with people that may not necessarily agree with your position and your ideologies and some of your concepts. But you find that common ground, you, you do the research, and you really lend yourself to listening to what people have to say versus constantly telling people what you would like them to hear. So it's, it's a it's symbiotic relationship, if you will, in working with people, understanding people, and respecting people. And that's really what it was all about, working in that environment. And there were some, some difficult situations. Uh, we had a lot of uh, terrorism activities in Europe at that time from the Red Army faction, the Action Direct in France, and then the CCC in Belgium. 
and uh, it did it was uh, very critical at times uh in dealing with those individuals because they did not have obviously the general public's interest in in mind when they were blowing up different facilities and such especially those that were uh, aligned with the american forces and the american interests so uh, i was a big part of that at the time i was the first one to arrive um, at, at a location uh, undisclosed still to this day in uh, Belgium, and uh, I learned how to speak flat, uh, French. Interestingly enough, I spoke three languages pretty fluently at the time and uh, didn't speak any French. And the way I learned French was as an old Trekkie, as we used to say, watching Star Trek in French and was able to get a, a usable uh, grasp of the French language. So it was an interesting time. We did accomplished a lot in about uh, 13 months and thwarted uh, the, the terrorist threat and the Soviet threat at the time. And my wife was a French major in college, and I think she'd be terrified to know that you learned French by watching Star Trek, but I, <laughs> I think that's funny. That's a great story. <laughs> so, Mike, let's get philosophical. What are the core values and principles that led you to identify yourself as a conservative? I'd have to say that it really came down to uh, the market, capital market, marketing values, personal responsibility is a big one is that what we find in the difference in some of our opponents and some of those that may be on the other side of the aisle is that there's a tendency to have a heavy reliance on government to resolve and address the issues that we have on a day-to-day basis. I believe in the conservative approach and that provide people with the necessary skill sets, the tools, the capabilities and competencies that allow them to be successful, regardless of what that may be, whatever their vocation is, what their desires are, and and follow through with that and enable them to do that, give them the tools. And if there's subsidies necessary to do that in adult schools and classes, if they don't want to pursue college degrees, then so be it. But that was one of the core values that I see is that a self-reliance, a personal reliance, a can-do attitude, to be able to do what you can do Enable yourself to be the best you can be in life, whatever direction and vocation you pursue. And then, of course, there's always the national defense. And I believe in a strong national defense. And the reason for that is because we know that in this day and age, that there's always so much hostility going on in so many different countries. And I have to say, uh, uh, in, in prior to the last two, two and a half years, we had a, a period of relative peace throughout the world. Certainly there was always dis- disagreement, but we enjoyed a time to where, how many times would you see somebody walk into the DMZ and shake hands with, with, a, with a hostile opponent and a dictator? Um, you know, it's always best to be able to go ahead and prepare for war, but you hope for the, that there's never the eventuality that you're going to have to use it. It is a deterrent effect. And that's really what it's all about is that, and you're capable, competent, and have the best technology out there and the innovation that enables us to be effective. And, and that's one of the things from a conservative perspective that I really, really align with uh, and on always, always limited government. I think that a lot of times, uh, Different groups, organizations, and people feel that uh, the, the free paycheck is, is something that's expected, as I say. And, and there are times to where that's necessitated. People fall on hard times. They're unemployed, especially during COVID. We saw a, a, a significant drop in the employment um, uh, capabilities and the numbers out there due to a myriad of reasons. At that time, that's where the government steps in and provides the degree of safety and security that that the Constitution permits and allows for. But when it comes to instilling and incorporating moral values and moral judgments, I think that's where we have to draw the line and that there's an expectation that if you're going to be put on to welfare roles and other types of substance or subsistence programs, that there's an expectation that it's not permanent. But we have to be able to go ahead and provide the programs, the motivations, and the capabilities for those people that are on those programs to be motivated, incentivized, to be able to go ahead and do better in life so they can become active contributing citizens in their own right. Are there specific conservative thinkers, leaders, or historical figures who have influenced your views? Absolutely. I'd have to say, interesting enough, and not many people say this, is Theodore Roosevelt. I believe he, uh, in an eight, the eight, late 1800s, uh, he believed in the bully pulpit. 
and I had to get out there and convey and communicate with the people to let them know uh, what he was going to do for them and how he was going to do that for them. Just what we see a lot of times is individuals will get into an office and they'll promise you the world. They'll tell you that they're going to go ahead and accomplish a myriad of different things. But when a push comes to shove, when they get elected, there's no follow up. And when you look at the voting records of some of those people, they really don't do what they said that they were going to do. And, and, and sometimes they try, but there's never a follow-up action to determine as to whether how successful they are. That's first and foremost. Martin Luther King is another one from my perspective, as far as the, the, it's your character, not the color of your skin or your ethnicity or your religion that should be driving decisions. It comes down to we're all Americans, we all have American values, and we all have similar concerns. And Martin Luther King uh, uh, was able to go ahead and uh, galvanize and solidify an American public to believing that everybody has a fair and equal chance. And there's always going to be prejudice and bigotry out there. And I think that's unfortunate part of human nature and uh, is more of the um, minority versus the majority as it relates to the population as a whole. But I think everybody has a fair opportunity. And Martin Luther King um, uh, embodied that probably the best. And then I'd also have to say Ronald Reagan. I certainly have a little bias because I, I worked under his administration. Uh, joviality. You know, you've got to have a little bit of joviality and, and take, you take things seriously. You're very serious about the issues and how you address those issues and use every ounce of talent from a leadership perspective that you've acquired over time and, the, and that of others, too. We don't work in a micro in a, in a microcosm, um, in, 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 a, um, in, in a silo, if you will. So I'd have to say Ronald Reagan, because of the fact that he did hard work, he rolled up his sleeves and did the job but yet, and, and took it seriously, but yet he had a sense of humor. And I always liked that about him, even, even under adverse conditions when he got shot that, that, that day in the hospital. We all remember, and he said, I hope you're all Republicans. And the doctor responded, Mr. President, today we're all Republicans. And I think that's the kind of an attitude you have to have. And then of course, Abraham Lincoln, probably going, went through one of the most uh, difficult periods in our nation's history. And it's displayed and epitomized resilience and under adverse conditions and situations was able to go ahead and stand up for what he believed in and, and recognizing the grave impact to what was occurring at the time and, and how the divisiveness of the, of the country uh, was overwhelming, but was able to stay resilient, didn't get everything he wanted the way he wanted it, but was able to go ahead and bring a country back and didn't hold anything against the South at the time when they lost. Matter of fact, he tried to reincorporate and reinstitute the country as a union, as a nation, versus being able to go ahead and take out uh, any type of retribution against those that were fighting, to include Robert E. Lee, who I had a great respect for as well as a general and as a, as a uh, strategi strategist. Now let's look outside our U.S. borders. What should America's role be in the world and should we be the world's police officer? I think it starts with the, the presidential administration. They established the rules for the national strategic plan. But I think overall, we look at what is in the best interest of our country as we should. It, it's, it's America first and as it should be. And I believe that. Because Americans' values, everybody's obviously trying to come here for a reason, not because they dislike us, but because they love us and they see us as a pinnacle of, of success, opportunity. Um, one of the things I want, I'd like to be able to do, you asked me earlier, why am I doing this? Because I want to see that light shine bright again on the Statue of Liberty. I want people to be able to come here, but in the right way. We're a land of rules and laws. And that's where it transitions over to, should we be the world's police force? I think that's a, a could be an overcharacterization or overstatement sometimes. I think, I think we're there to further the opportunities uh, for democracy or a constitutional republic, as the case may be, and other countries that have a desire. Again, their sovereignty does come into play. If that's the decision of the people of that country based upon their mores and their 
expectations or cultures that are unique to that country, we can help them and, and, and form uh, the basis for free elections, for the, the, the amendments and the, and the Bill of Rights that we as Americans enjoy and that we have as a, as a right, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and others. But should we be the world's police force? Again, it goes back to, to what I said earlier as it relates to our expectations are that uh, we would love every country out there to go ahead and be self-fulfilling, self-propagating uh, self, uh, uh, as it relates to being able to go ahead and perpetuate the ideals that Americans stand for as far as in freedom, as far as in being able to go ahead and uh, pursue prosperity for themselves and their respective families and loved ones, and to have a government that only gets involved when necessary and, and it is not and decentralized that authority, uh, which be, it be, has become so incredibly overly burdensome. Uh, that's the kind of thing that I think America projects overseas. And unfortunately, we have to be aware from a diplomatic and economic and a military perspective and in that order to be able to go ahead and look at what uh, may be adverse to America's interest and our respective allies or to any peoples of the world. Remember Croatia and Serbia. Uh, I think those kinds of situations were allowed to, to fester way too long to the detriment of millions of people where it was almost um, uh, genocide. So I think that's where the value systems of the American public, we do... Uh, have a degree of solidarity and that we want to see others benefit. And I can get into uh, at some point in the line of questioning with regards to the CCP and, and what their value system is and how it, the, the hundred year plan that they have. So to answer your question, no, we should not be the, uh, the world's police force, but we certainly need to retain and maintain our vigilance to be able to look out for America's interest abroad. All right. Now let's put you on the candidate hot seat. Please do. What do you see as the biggest challenges facing the country and how do you believe they should be addressed? Another very good question, Chris, because that gets to the root of, I think, a lot of the distress and dissension that we are, are lost right now. And I think that's why individuals like myself and many others that I've spoken to that uh, have similar ideologies and similar plans to go into leadership positions within our government to be able to break that logjam if you will, of divisiveness. You know, we've had senior leadership within our government say that they want to go ahead and stop divisiveness. They want to preclude divisiveness, increase diversity, in which I believe in. I taught diversity of thought when I was the human resources director with the California Air National Guard. And as a mentoring and a beta program, which was uh, adopted throughout the entire Air National Guard for 93,000 men and women, to where we looked at diversity of thought and the benefits of that. And I think we need to really get to a point to where we uh, are able to work together and recognize that we have more in common than we have that with those differences. And that's where we, we start at, is that find that common thread. We all wanna be, see our families do well. We all wanna have opportunities and jobs, and we all wanna be safe and secure. And knowing that when we walk out the door at night or our children or grandchildren, as the case may be, walk out, that they're safe. And, no, and that's really what it comes down to is break that logger jam for divisiveness throughout this country and, and be in a position to be effectively unify us. And I think that by educating people, talking to people and listening to people and respecting each other, I want to emphasize that respecting each other and real, and then having civil discourse on those issues that we disagree on, that we're in a position to be able to go ahead and actually move the needle forward and get things done in Congress. All right, let's go a little bit more granular now and talk about several hot button issues. No, no pun intended here with the first one. People on both sides of the issue of climate change feel very passionate and very set in their beliefs. Now, some, of course, say climate change is man-made. Now, others scoff at that opinion. You live in California, and you're seeing firsthand what are clearly more volatile conditions. Reservoirs that were almost bone dry last year because of prolonged drought 
are now getting close to capacity because of monsoon-like rains and near-record snowpack, which is crazy to think about in the course of a year. How would you try to create common ground when people are so far apart on this issue? Uh, that is something that is uh, proverbially near and dear to my heart. Had a conversation with uh, a group of agriculturists and ranchers and farmers, and over 50%, well, almost 50% of the water that this state uses goes towards those efforts. And, and very little of that goes towards residential homes. So to answer your question, we have 400 different entities within the water districts with throughout the state of California. Climate change, regardless of what your position is on it, recognizes that there are going to be times, regardless of what the causes are, that there are going to be drought periods. And, and California has not performed well in this area as far as being able to prepare for it. And recognizing that we need to be able to put forward legislation and, and a natural fund. We do this for the insurance companies and many other venues to where businesses, if we're going to go ahead and start uh, looking at being able to take a proactive steps is to, to have a small fund available to be able to help, to help the businesses throughout California and residents as well to be able to go ahead and endure the tough times when we have those droughts. The other thing, in addition to legislation or creating a fund, if you will, in the state of California, is more importantly, is looking at the different reservoirs and increasing the capabilities of the reservoirs. 80%, 80% of the water that comes down from the Sierras is lost through the aqueduct into the ocean, 80%. That's really unfortunate, and especially with knowing this for 20 or 30 years, and that we can do something, desalinization plants. Uh, our allies and our friends overseas have created desalinization capabilities that are very effective. With the proper planning and, and budgeting and projections, we can incorporate that and actually still that over a long-term five-year period of time till we can start that and reallocating and appropriations and funds for that in the state of California. The other thing is, is to go ahead and introduce legislation uh, in the state of California that would uh, ensure that the business interests of those 400 different water districts and industries are in the public interest, in the public interest to make sure that they're doing what they should be doing uh, and that that water retention is available. I mean, we need to basically look at the groundwater as well. The aquifer in some places is being depleted, but all of that runoff, that 80% could be diverted if done so properly. We did it with the aqueducts. They have been able to go ahead and provide water from the Colorado River and other areas to be able to go ahead and replenish that. We're seeing that we're in a, we're in a banner year, fortunately, that we have a lot of water, but, What's going to happen two, three years from now? And we're not planning for that effectively. So we need to be able to institute programs and processes that, uh, that allow us to be able to go ahead and retain that lost water. And it can be done. I mean, there's a lot of smart people out there that have the ability and the capability to be able to think these processes out and, and make sure that we can go ahead and institute the, the engineering necessary to make it happen. Another excuse me, controversial issue is money in politics. Should we somehow limit the influence of big money in our political system, or would it be better for everyone to follow the approach of some states that allow unlimited spending as long as everything is reported, or is there a different, better alternative? I, I, another, another good question, Chris. Um, a lot of good questions. I think that it, there needs to be transparency and visibility. That's first and foremost. So what the other states have done and some of the legislation within those states provides that degree of transparency so that way we can see where the funds come from. One of the things that hasn't been utilized as much as I would have liked to have seen is some of the legislation, the CRA, I don't know if you're familiar with that, in 1996, the Congressional uh, Oversight Act, uh, is it, it, it provides a mechanism to where agencies, uh, cabinet level agencies, before they implement new policies, which almost have the same effect as law. As a matter of fact, 
agencies, government agencies, institute uh, directions and policies many times more than the United States Congress institutes legislation. And, and we see, especially during the, the COVID crisis, in that a lot of agencies traditionally that didn't have that kind of authority who stepped in and instituted policies that were not necessarily in the best interest of the public. We found that out after the fact. Many of us recognize that and know that. We need to use the CRA, what it was intended for, which means that if in fact a agency uh, that's proposing a particular type of policy that has an impact from a fiscal perspective or uh, other perspectives on the American public, it has to go through the Congress, both houses of the Congress, before it's approved. A lot of times that hasn't been done. We're actually leading by executive order more so in the last several administrations uh, than we are actually legislating. Congress needs to roll up its sleeve and get back to work again and sit down and work out the different details to come up with good legislation that uh, benefits the American people. Where would you devote the bulk of your time as a member of Congress? And where should other members of Congress devote the majority of their time? I, I think really it comes up to each individual congressperson. It starts with uh, the ethics and integrity. That's first and foremost. That any decisions that are made and any discussions that are had within the halls of Congress on the Capitol uh, need to take into account, first and foremost, the public's interest. That's what it's there for. You are a representative of the American people, and that is important. That being said, from my perspective, everybody has a set of unique talents that they bring to, to, to the table. Uh, mine is in government uh, policy, uh, as well as healthcare policy, and that being said, in military policy. So I would be, uh, in my particular case, uh, when I do uh, get elected, I would be looking for opportunities to be able to take those talents and that information that I've acquired over three decades to be able to go ahead and put that to use to ask the relevant questions and also make sure that there's accountabilities within those different committees and subcommittees that pertain to those three areas that I mentioned. Our elected leaders are supposed to be just that, leaders. What does leadership mean to you? And is there a leadership philosophy approach that's best, and especially for public servants? Leadership is being able to effectively influence others to be able to go ahead and, and do something that either they wouldn't normally do or something that is in their best interest. And that's subjective, that aspect of it. But again, with the integrity and the ethics that you impose as a part of who you are, uh, in the best interest of the public and the public interest. My leadership looks at a, a variety of different leadership styles. And then again, that's acquired over time. Over three, four decades, you look at leadership as far as a, a professional toolkit, as I say, and you have adaptive leadership, you have follower leadership, you have authentic leadership, you have situational leadership. And and all of that comes into play and you have to evaluate the, the level of development of the people that you're trying to lead. You know, some people may be just at an entry level. You have to be a little bit more uh, empathetic and a little bit more understanding of their respective needs. And the fact that you're trying to, at the same time, provide a degree of mentorship. So you have to have that in the back of your mind. You want to produce people that can be objective, in the time that it's required, because sometimes you don't necessarily have time to make a completely informed decision. But the leadership capabilities that you impose are going to be based upon your experience level. And I like to use, for the most part, situational leadership, where I have the flexibility and the latitude to, to be able to go ahead and assess, evaluate who I'm working with, their level of knowledge, their competencies, their capabilities, and apply that to making the best informed decision that I can possibly make. On either side of the aisle, what core values do you believe are essential for effective leadership? I'd have to say the core values of integrity first. We used to say when I was in the military, people first, mission always. And that means that you always look at the core values of respect for your people that work with you, 
that have oppositional views, uh, civil discourse, that you want to be able to go ahead and have a constructive conversation and then come to some sort of, of uh, consensus as it relates to what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, and then find that common ground and thread and that core value of respect and mutual trust. And there goes back to that issue of trust. You want to be able to go ahead and be a, a person of your word. And I can't emphasize that enough, that core value of being, in my case, a man of my word. And if I can't do something, then don't promise it to somebody. You've mentioned ethics and integrity a few times today. How do you approach decision-making as a leader and what factors do you prioritize and where do ethics fit into the equation? Ethics first and foremost always. Uh, ethics uh, is what we've heard before from our parents and colleagues and mentors over the years. Ethics is what you do when nobody's looking. And that's really what it comes down to is that just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean that you can or should. And that, that relates to the decision-making and the discretionary processes that are in place. Again, you're here to be able to go ahead and represent tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands and millions of people. In doing so, you need to take into consideration what is in the best interest of the people and what it is that they want. And the ethics component of that demands that you always keep that in the forefront of your mind. And, and when you're implementing different leadership skill sets, sometimes you can't please everybody, but you're gonna do your best to try to be conscientious and cognizant mm -hmm. of the needs of, of those that you may not be able to please at that particular time when you make that decision. But again, you're making the best informed decision you can at the time in the interest of the general public. How should a leader, and particularly someone in office, handle and resolve conflicts? Well, certainly not in the ways that I've seen in the past where you have people getting up and yelling and throwing books and, and different pens and pencils at each other. Um, I think when you become irrational, I think that you're not able to have rational discussion at that particular time. Um, that common sense goes out the window and you are unable to no longer have a substantive conversation. The way I would deal with that is uh, remain temp temperamental as it relates to not being uh, explosive. Understand that these different issues create passion in people. They are passionate about their beliefs. So respect that. But at the same time, you need to have a degree of cordiality in the way that you approach people and mutual respect and build that trust that I may not agree with you on every particular position you got or the way that policy should be implemented or contrived or formulated, but let's talk about it and see where we have that common ground, that common interest and work through that to at least be able to have that fundamental foundation and starting point to where we can grow upon that and expand. You mentioned cordiality. Let's go maybe a step further. What role should empathy play in leadership? And how can our leaders be more empathetic without appearing weak and ineffective? Like, first thing that comes to my mind when, when you make that comment and ask that question is sometimes I think leaders may be intimidated by the lack of knowledge or how to approach people. Um, you know, I had a mother that used to hug me all the time and I loved it. And, and to this day, I still do. And, you know, thank goodness she's still there and to be able to do that for me. Uh, my children, you know, I love giving them hugs and, and um, I'm very, very passionate when it comes to being able to go ahead and show my affection for them and that I want to see them thrive, do well. And, uh, and have the opportunities that maybe I didn't have when I was younger, and that, and that maybe that entrepreneurial spirit to some degree. But I think really what it comes down to is uh, when, when you raise that question, the first thing that came to my mind is when we had the uh, rail car crash, I believe it was in Pennsylvania, Ohio. And when nobody from the government responded initially, 
and took a, 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 a proactive steps to ensure, and that's what the United States government the role is in part, is to look out for the safety domestically and the tranquility of people. And when you have an accident like that, that's horrendous and can have that degree of toxicity that can hurt people, not in the short term, but also in the long term and, and get into the groundwater as we saw. Nobody's out there testing it. And I was really, uh, really bothered by the lack of approach and to your point, empathy uh, by, the, by the administration that was in office, that is in office at the time when that occurred. Um, I think back to um, uh, one of our courses in USC that was talking about uh, Mayor Reardon. And I remember there was a catastrophic bus crash and his first inclination, and this is the true indication of a leader, that set aside all of the concerns from a political standpoint as to how it was going to be perceived and what the liabilities were potentially for the city, and said, we're going to respond to this. We're going to put our emergency capabilities in play now. That is true leadership as far as in looking out for the interest and the well-being of your fellow man and woman and looking out to be able to make sure that they are not harmed in any way, shape, or form and putting the abilities of the United States government or the county governments in play to optimize the safety, security, and well-being of that public. A moment ago, you talked about being a passionate person. It's almost like you're reading my, my Q&A in advance. You've said before that leaders are leaders because they are passionate people, passionate about a particular issue or their community or their country. How do we instill or stir that passion in others today? I wish we could do that for everybody. And I think it's not that I'm reading the cue cards or thinking ahead, Chris. I think what it comes down to is that good people with good hearts want to do good things for people. And I think that when you educate people and you let people know that you have more in common than you do as far as in, in, in um, variation in thinking and that we all have a common interest going forward, I think that's really the key is that's where the empathy is, is that if you really care about the people that you represent and you're willing to do the hard thing, which is stand up and say, this particular policy or this particular uh, program is not benefiting the people. And I am the one that developed it and, and approved it. You need to be able to stand up. And that's where accountability comes into play is to say, yes, we did this. We had the best of intentions and we're going to go ahead and revamp it. We're going to revise it. And it's going to be something that's going to be better. And we're bringing in the right people to make that decision. And that's where the empathy comes in, is that you've got to really be accountable to the people that are looking to you to make those tough decisions and those tough calls. Mike, we've been talking a lot about leadership. Part of leadership is responding to feedback and criticism, and when needed, adjusting to it. How do we get people in both parties to respond more positively to feedback and criticism? And in such a sharply divided political environment, how do we get our politicians to give constructive criticism instead of just engaging all the name calling and pointless arguments. One of the things I learned in, in my three decades of military duty and then also commensurate uh, concurrently in, in government uh, positions and then working in the private sector as well, more so, is that you have to be willing to listen. I think everybody likes the theatrics that we see a lot of times on TV to take the opportunity to be able to get some visibility, convey a point. But the name calling, I think, demeans and diminishes the individual that's, that's doing that. Um, sure, if you're attacked, you have, I think, a natural propensity and proclivity to be able to go ahead and, and fight back. And as you should, you should, and, but I think it's through fact and bringing up the fact that why your proposal or what you're positing is incorrect. And this is why, based upon empirical data, fact, and, and be able to go ahead and show the other person, hopefully uh, through a handshake and having a dinner after the fact offsite and saying that, look, we're trying to resolve the same issue here. We just have different approaches to being able to accommodate that. And uh, I find that 
I want to reach out and talk to people, always have in the, in the last three decades, of what is going to be the best mechanism, research, learn about the other person, learn about what their desires are, what their position is on different issues, and respect it. And then do your own research and then find out, okay, what is your position? And then approach that individual one-on-one, not in front of the cameras, not in front of all the lights to where, okay, this is Mike Coslow's moment to where I have, you know, five minutes on the clock to be able to go ahead and get a point across. And certainly you do that, but you do it based on fact. You're based on empirical information. And hopefully you've had that conversation with that individual or individuals ahead of time to let them know to be able to build that trust. So that way you don't put yourself in the position of having negative commentary, epithets thrown at each other. And, and it is, it's somewhat um, sophomoric to use a word. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't reflect the professionalism of the organization. And there's where the distrust of the American people originate is that, you know, I, I deal with this with my, used to deal with this with my five-year-old and my seven-year-old and my 10-year-old. I think sometimes parents would be better equipped walking in from a, a, a parent-teacher organization or agency to be able to go ahead and resolve some of these issues because they're, they've had to deal with it on a day-to-day basis. It's an unnecessary, it's unprofessional, and I think we need to bring a different standard with people like myself and others that are there. To, to regain that degree of professionalism when you're dealing with such crucial and important issues that affect this country. Communications is another essential component of leadership. What do our current federal leaders do well when it comes to communications and where do they fall short? I think that you have to be able to effectively articulate in the most succinct terms what you're trying to say and what you're trying to convey, uh, your passion of what you're trying to convey, and what the benefit is to people. Uh, that's what I think that some people do well in, co- in the halls of Congress and even in, uh, throughout our government. Uh, I see that cabinet level individuals, usually in the rank and file, uh, you're talking about the FBI and other organizations. There's been a lot of politicization, in a lot of these organizations, these capital, cabinet level agencies. But it, the rank and file, for the most part, are the ones that are adversely impacted because they are trying their best. They really have the, the interest of the American public in, in their, I was one of those. And I took it very seriously. They had an uh, executive order 12333 that was ingrained in us over and over and over again, that you cannot collect intelligence information on US persons. And if you accidentally or inadvertently collect it, you have a, sim- a limited time period to disposition that. It seems like we've moved away from that and that, and that, um, that important uh, right of freedom and expression um, has, has, has been politicized. And I think we need to move away from that. When it comes to public safety, you oppose the defund the police movement because that's just not common sense in your book. I wonder if we can draw an analogy. Conservatives elected Donald Trump to blow up Washington and drain the swamp, so to speak. Is it possible that many liberals who support defunding the police don't necessarily want to weaken public safety, but instead want to blow up a system that does have problems and to drain a swamp that does have racial inequalities. If that's the case, is there a way for conservatives and liberals to get on the same page and fix those issues without the rancor that comes with the words defund the police? Absolutely. I think what it comes down to, this goes back to, I think as Americans, we all have the same interest at heart is that security and tranquility and that safety for ourselves and our families and our loved ones and those that are around us within our work environments. I think by, I think through educating, I think sometimes there's opportunistic uh, approaches that uh, certain elements and certain individuals see that they can go ahead and further a, a, an agenda item. But when it comes to defunding the police, I think as we see it, it, they've attempted that in, in different types of cities uh, in Oregon, in, in Washington, and others in New York. And it's not working, obviously. And there's a reason for that is because when you defund an organization that, that is, is its, its charter is to protect you, to ensure the equal 
uh, application of rights. And with that comes responsibility by the, by the, the general public as well is that in mutual consideration and courtesy, these men and women uh, and individuals within the police forces are doing a job. Now, granted, in every vocation, every job that we know, there are going to be individuals that take advantage of that and don't work, in the, in, in work within the public interest. And we need to ferret those out. We need to be able to go ahead and screen them out and remove them and hold them accountable uh, to the fullest extent of the law. And that's, there's the emphasis of the extent of the law, follow the rules, follow the regulations, follow the law. And that's where the people like myself, when I do get into office, listen to people. And there may be times where you need to be able to change, but defunding the police is cutting off your nose to spite your face, as we used to say. And that these are the people that are there to protect you. And if when you diminish that resource and that capability, and these people are working hard at the risk of their own lives in many cases. It includes the firefighters as well, and the first responders. All of them are doing a difficult, difficult job. And when you diminish that and you lose respect for them, which is what a lot of organizations unfortunately are doing right now, even the military is tied into that to a large degree, is that there's not that sense of respect for what the role is that they play is to keep us safe, to allow us to do the things, to say the things under the First Amendment that we're able to say, to protect those rights. Otherwise, you have complete anarchy. And we've seen that occur. And at the detriment to the taxpayer, you and I are paying money for those services. And when we diminish that and divert that to other uh, different programs, it's not going to benefit us in the long run. And we don't have that benefit anymore. We always hear that the ballot box is our recourse if we're unhappy with our elected leaders. But elections only roll around every two years for members of Congress, four years for the president and a lot of state officials, and six years for U.S. senators. Do you think there are other steps we can take to ensure accountability and more responsibility within government? Absolutely. I think that uh, there should be education programs. Going back to even uh, within middle schools and junior highs and high schools to be able to go ahead and teach civics and civic responsibility in those schools as it relates there's where the uh, where the um, ethics comes into play as far as this is the expectation and what you want to do and how why you want to do it and that's really what it boils down to is being in a position to go ahead and effectively educate the public in different medians to where we can go in and have that degree of accountability. And, and that way, uh, the transparency is there, people know exactly what they're doing, and, and false narratives and misinformation will lo- no longer be the prevalent source of, of information to the public. Two things I think have been especially absent and sorely needed as a long-term vision and long-term goals. Asian countries like China are known for their 100-year plans, Americans always seem to be fixate, fixated on the next quarter's profits and losses or the next election. Maybe we don't need a 10-year or 100-year plan, but how and when are we going to focus on where we need to be 10, 20, or 25 years from now, and how can we get Americans behind one? This is something that I'm very passionate about, is that sometimes you have to make a tough decision. We've been in the position as Americans to where we've had to deal with transitory periods of time in our different economies, and our different uh, supply chains as we've seen in the past and a reliance on foreign governments that don't have the interest, the best interest of the American public in in their minds Uh, on many, many levels. We need to go ahead and have that degree of independence from energy. We were an energy exporter um, uh, and, and we got to that point to where, the, where I think the gallon of gas was under $2 a gallon on the average at one point. Uh, the, the economy was doing extraordinarily well. We were below 2% inflation rate. All those things were because of, of America, American dominance and independence and being able to go ahead and take the resources that we have available to us and take advantage of that as much as we could to the benefit of the American people and the American taxpayer and American businesses. Right now with China and the CCP, the 100-year plan, as you pointed out, they're very methodical. 
They're very patient and they've implemented processes and programs that have undermined many, many of our infrastructure capabilities. They're buying land here in California as well, from what I'm told. Um, when, when we had the drought, they were buying vineyards uh, to be able to go because the property values went up and the value went up and that it was no longer going to be used for vineyards and they can develop that. Developers were looking at that. But again, there was a CCP interest in that. And, and they're right next to, in many cases, in proximity of some of our most classified military interests and bases. Uh, the supply chain. How could we let ourselves become dependent on another country that does not have our interest and just cut that off when it comes to medical supplies, DME, durable medical equipment? And even because uh, the large companies, sometimes I think that we need to institute processes and programs, even Section 230 with regards to some of the social media outlets as it relates to making them accountable. And there's the key word again, accountability, for looking out for American interests. And I think American and Congress needs to go back to a mindset of looking at it, that this may not help make help the bottom line of the major corporations that have themselves ingrained and ingratiated into the People's Republic of China or the CCP, uh, but also, and then have a transitory period. This is not going to be a shock. We're not going to do this overnight and have a transitory period over three to five years to say, you need to find alternative sources and opportunities and go back to the Buy America Act and being able to enable, enable us to be able to flourish in this country and not sit there and stand up and provide financial support to countries that want to undermine the American value system. Mike, we have just a few minutes left. If people want to learn more about you, how can they get in touch with you? And thank you again for this time, Chris. It was very, very invigorating and really appreciate the conversation. Uh, I would recommend going to https dot backslash backslash votemichaelcoslow.com. And thank you again. I always like to close on a positive note. So I'd like you to take us at the end of this episode by telling us what gives you the most hope for America's future and the future of its citizens. I believe that th there is the American ideal that we all recognize that we are a melting pot and we all came from different backgrounds. Myself, my, my grandparents came in from uh, in 1917. I think that everybody has a story and there's a similarity there. We all had, had adversity, but we've all prevailed. And the American value system that we want to be able to go ahead and make sure that every American has the ability and will have the ability to be able to flourish, prosper, and be tranquil and safe in their, their, their mindsets. Michael Coslow, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure. And on Twitter, or I guess what is known today as X at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.